loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Hello again, friends, and welcome to this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. One more time, this is John Russin. I'm here with my sidekick, faithful companion, Frank Friedman, and we're here to talk about the stories that Father builds in our life and the power that those stories can have for us and for those around us. And we're here today with a guest, a new friend of ours, uh, at least a new friend of mine, Mr. Nico LaHood. And Frank, I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce Nico. You've known him a lot longer than I have. Uh, thank you, John. Nico, I think we met about 10, 11 years ago. Uh, yeah, uh, at least that long. Right? <laughs> at least that long. That seems a lot longer. <laughs> uh, in a friend of ours' house. And I guess, John, the way that I would describe Nico is in the Gospel of John, Jesus found a guy named Nathaniel, and Jesus said of him, behold, it's kind of a wake up, look at this, this is not the norm, a man in whom is no guile. And that kind of means this is a man that you don't have to ask what he's thinking, hmm. uh, what you see is what you get, honest, straightforward, and uh, that was the way I found Nico to be. And it's the kind of guy that I relate to very well because uh, I don't have time for the, the gamesmanship of humanity. And so Nico and I connected, we've been connected ever since. Yes. Uh, he's got a new ministry that he's launched, uh, a podcast himself. I'll let him tell you about that and introduce himself to you. So Nico, why don't you say hello, Nico? Thank you, Frank. John, thank you for having me on. It's an honor. I mean, I Romans 13 says to give honor to whom honor is due. And Frank, I'm a huge fan of Frank, of Friedman. And I, I, I talk about him often. I do anywhere from prison ministry to a men's Bible study to a, a, a number of podcasts. And I've served in public office. And there's, there's always a Frank Friedman story in some of the discussions. <laughs> I My own journey is kind of wonky and wacky and but for the grace of God, would I even be here talking to you guys, which is what most of our testimonies predicated off of. But Frank, I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a big fan of Frank Friedman. You know, there's a lot of people that uh, I would call their, <laughs> uh, I don't know, I, I told Frank I would try to keep this PG rated, but there's a lot of distant cousins of, to Boaz, and they're called fake as, and, and Frank's not one of them. Frank is a the real deal. He's as real as you get, and that's why we did hit it off the way it is. I said, Frank, I'm I'm just going to speak my heart to you. And it's, I believe it's biblically minded and it's biblically guided and it's Holy Spirit driven. And it's just a joy. I've, I've, I've enjoyed doing life with Frank for the last 12 plus years. Well, that's exciting to hear. I've been knowing Frank since when Frank, maybe 1989. Mm. So I've watched him go from lots of dark brown hair to somewhat less than that over the years. <laughs> uh, Frank mentioned Nico, uh, a podcast, a new ministry. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? 
I was honored to serve Bear County. Bear County is San Antonio. It's, it's spelled like you would say Bexar, but here it's Bear County as the elected district attorney for four years. And that was a ministry in and of itself. I, I, it gave me opportunities to speak to crowds that no pastor could get in front of. I never went alone. I always took my quote unquote testimony with me or the people say story, but people of faith, you know, we know it's a testimony. And, and it was, it's a ten- testimony of, you know, triumph over tragedy and challenges. And we can talk about the tragedy that happened in my life years ago. And so when I was called out of that ministry and that service as a public servant, I went back into private practice as a criminal defense lawyer. And, and I've, been, I've been facilitating a Bible study for the Lord for 12 years now, men's Bible study every week. We've, we, I think I've missed maybe three times, four times in 12 years. In, when I was in office or not in office, it didn't matter. And that's still going on today. But aside from the men's Bible study, as we started a podcast, May will be two years. It's called R-Rated Christianity. I'm sure that'll get your religious listeners' attention. And the <laughs> R stands for real and raw because we have real conversations about real issues, issues that the church doesn't want to deal with, but we deal with it because we're called to. Raw, we do it in a very authentic way, a real and just a genuine way. Kind of, I would say, a Matthew 23 way when Jesus is talking very raw to the Pharisees and seven woes to the Pharisees. But hopefully it leads you to a redemptive relationship with a first century Jew named Jesus. <laughs> and so that's what the R rate stands for, real raw, leading us to a redemptive relationship with Christ. Well, that's exciting to hear. I will check that out. And our listeners, please do that as well. You have to sign the waiver if you listen to it, because there's some slang words used in there that might not find behind a pulpit, but in a prison <laughs> ministry, you'll find them. But that's all. But we, 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 it's all Bible for us, John. We're very, we, 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 we teach very hermeneutically proper, uh, linguistically proper. It matters. I'm a lawyer, so language matters. The context of a situation matters. And so we, we really try to handle God's words. It's 2 Timothy 2.15, to properly handle God's word and not to be embarrassed to do it. And that's really what kind of drives me in my everyday discussions about Jesus and heaven. Well, that's, that's great to hear. Frank and I sort of live by an 11th commandment. You made <laughs> reference to oh, a little bit of R-rated uh, and uh, our conservative listeners might be a little concerned. Well, the 11th commandment by which Frank and I live, uh, we sort of coined many years ago. It's uh, thou shalt not take thyself too seriously. Amen. Buddy. And so we, uh, we embody that. We live that. We live that to each other and with all the others, uh, the folks with whom we've come in contact. Yeah. All right, my friend, let's get started. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your early years. How do they shape you for adulthood? Were you raised in a Christian home? How did you come to meet Jesus? Sort of attack that multi-headed question uh, as the spirit leads right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep it. I'll give you the cliff note version. Uh, you know, I was born and raised in a Catholic denominational environment. I went to Catholic school from Montessori all the way to college, to high school and college. So that denomination, Catholicism, permeated my mindset. I was raised, I mean, I was taught by nuns and priests and things of this nature. And so I was, I was raised under the guise of rules, 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 rules. But as, as we know, and as Frank and I have discussed many times over the years, and I, and I, I say often that rules without relationship breeds rebellion. I think I embody that in the sense that I rebelled at one point in my life. But early on in my life, 
it was a good, you know, my parents are still married today. My pop's 84 by God's grace. My mom is 73, 72. So, he, you know, they've been married. He's 11 and a half years older than her, but they've been married 52 years, 50 something years. I'm 48. My older brother would be 50. He's in heaven now. We'll talk about that. And my younger brother's uh, six years younger than I am. And so it was a good, it was a good childhood. I grew up on a, on a less affluent side of town with my grandma. So I got to see things in a different light. And then my pop was a lawyer. And so he provided certain things for us. They, they were nice and they were, they were definitely a, a blessing. And we looked at him as a blessing because my pop made sure that we looked at him as a blessing. And I knew it was a blessing because I saw what we didn't have when we, when I was spent all that time with my grandma, we had, you know, kickballs and a bicycle and we rode the bus everywhere and we didn't have much. And she had the black and white TV with the aluminum foil antenna. And <laughs> oh yeah. I remember that, people, man. people say it. I, I, I experienced it. You know, we, we, we had window AC units and, and we all shared in I, Mike and I, my older brother and I slept in a pullout sofa bed, but, but we had love. My grandma didn't love anybody else. Of course, <laughs> She was a pretty angry person. She had a rough life, but she loved us. And so it was a good childhood overall. Uh, and, and, you know, I have no complaints about my childhood. So I grew up in this denominational religious mentality and I knew who God was. I could point him out to you, but I couldn't introduce you to him. I didn't have a relationship with him. It became very apparent to me as I went through, went through life and went through the, the pitfalls and the challenges and the stumbles of life. Some of them, I caused others, they kind of bumped into me, but regardless, my reaction to things was definitely not biblical. Hmm. Well, you mentioned being raised a Catholic. So was I. Mm -hmm. And while I didn't make it through uh, Catholic education all the way through university, I had, my, uh, I had enough of a dose to give me the feel for uh, what I call Sister Mary Chainsaw, which is my collective name for all the nuns who, who uh, taught me and beat me. Uh, Frank, too, was raised a Catholic, but I'll share a little bit, something, Nico, on how I look at that. People ask me, well, if you're raised a Catholic, wow, how did you even come to Jesus? Well, here's, here's what the Holy Spirit told me a couple of years ago. He said, the Catholic Church built in you a framework so that when you finally heard the message of grace, the message of life, you heard about a relationship with your father, God, and your savior, Jesus, you knew exactly where to plug those in. Mm. So they built kind of a framework and I just was able to put those uh, little nuggets of information in there and in me as well. And I know in Frank, it built that framework so that when the time was right in the, you know, it, time, I, I can, I can agree with that, but also it built some animosity for me. It did. Tell us why. Honest. Yeah, well, because, you know, the, the rules part. And I saw a lot of hypocrisy. I'm not saying every Catholic is a hypocrite. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as we say, and, and paint with a broad brush. But it was a lot of hypocrisy that I saw. It was a lot of rules, and I couldn't answer why. I couldn't tell you why I was a quote-unquote Christian. I couldn't tell you why I believed that Jesus rose from the dead. I couldn't tell you why I believed in heaven. It was eventually tested when my brother was murdered. But I, I couldn't tell you why. And then when my brother was murdered, I was frankly pissed off at God because here's this loving God. I didn't understand. the, I didn't know the Bible. I, I had not really even read it. I definitely had not studied the Bible. I just knew some verses that I was told to memorize here and there and not even memorize, just repeat. And so, I, it, it, but there was still a framework because I, even though I was pissed off at God after my brother was murdered, I, I still believed there was a God. So I had some, someone to, to complain to. 
but also someone to look to eventually once I tripped over this first century Jew named Jesus that I wasn't looking for. So, so yes to the framework and at least my journey, but also I had to deal with some, some baggage, to be honest with you. Yeah. You mentioned your encounter with a first century Jew named Jesus. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, your brother's murder a couple of times. So talk to us about those. Uh, you're, in a, you're, you're, you're stumbling over Jesus and what, how that happened, uh, what changed in your life, and then how did that help you to see a different perspective on what happened to your brother? It wasn't immediate. I was stuck in the prism of hatred and anger and, and revenge. And my brother was, was, was murdered in my parents' driveway on August 15, 1996, at 2.14 in the morning, to be exact. Wow. They'd gone out with some friends. They were heading back to the house. There was four individuals that were carjacking women that night. So they followed a woman that was following, that was coming back to the house. And, and Mike got in between them as they tried to carjack them. He, he told her to run. They shot him in the face. They drove off. We walked out three minutes later. I, I helped load his body on the gurney after the investigation, after the detective showed up. I, I held my mom as she cried the way only a mama can cry, John. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a daddy. God trust me with four of his kids, my wife and I. And, and I always tell people that you couldn't blink fast enough before I would give my life for any one of my children, John. Yeah. You also couldn't blink fast enough before I would take a life for any one of my children. With all that being said, I think there's something inherently special, God-given me special, designed of a mommy's relationship with her child. And I heard my mom cry that way. You know, I, I often tell people when I, when I publicly speak, you know, we have, we have words in the English language for a child that loses their parents. What, what do we call that person, John? We call that person an orphan. What do you call a woman that loses her husband? A widow. A widow. What do you call a parent that loses their child? What, what English word do we have, John, that, that, that describes the pain of a, of a parent that loses their child? There well, isn't a single a word. word that captures it. No, there's descriptions. People, yes. whenever I say that in public, John, people give me descriptions and they're all relevant. And they're all good. I mean, but, but there's not a word that encapsulates that experience. And that's one thing that I've, that I've garnered back from, from my Catholic roots is, is, is to think about what, what Mary went through. What a wonderful example of a, of a follower of Christ, an obedient follower of God who accepts the duty who the angel Gabriel says you're blessed. And then she ends up being pregnant at what some scholars think 13 or 14 with a guy who think looking at her like she's some hoe because he hadn't had sex with her yet. She could have been killed for it back then. And she's probably thinking on the donkey going, um, how am I blessed again? And then she has to witness this child in 33 years be literally ripped apart, John, to a point of not being recognized. I thought of that when my mom was standing, sitting, kneeling over my brother. And as I tried to pick her up off the ground with saliva and mucus and tears yelling at the top of her lungs, why, why? And I said, I don't know, mom. And so I helped my pop eventually wash my brother's blood off my driveway, John. So oh, what do you gosh. do with that? What, what, what does someone, what does the world do with something like that, Johnson? Since we live in a society that's addicted to victimhood, we just can't get enough of it. If you're a victim, I'm more of a victim. And if I'm not a victim, I'm going to drop a, rock, drop a rock on my foot so I can hurt myself and be a victim. And then I can, I can you know, tweet about it or something or put it on my, my, my Facebook. So we're addicted to victimhood. So what do you do with that? What do you do with the society that says, man, Nico, I don't blame you if you're angry. I was an angry SOB, John. 
and the world had no answers for me. The world just said, I don't blame you. Well, as we know, and I didn't know at the time, Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is, right? So you will never live beyond what you believe. Well, I believed I was a victim. I believed that I was what I was two years prior to that. Sorry, I fast forwarded that I was arrested for selling drugs. There's another little <laughs> piece to the story. So I have all these labels. What do you do with that? You're a drug dealer, criminal. Now you're a victim, you know? I guess, I guess I am. So, so that's not what our, what our, what heaven says about us. That's not what our creator says about us. It's not what our savior says about us. And so I was in that battle, that dichotomy, that Royal rumble between, I don't blame you live in your victimhood, live in your anger, live in your unforgiveness, live in your revenge. And then I, and then they have this heavenly encounter where it says, you know, bless those that curse you forgive, not when you feel like it forgive. And you're more than a conqueror and you can accomplish anything. And then you have all these examples of wonderful people that went through some horrific experiences. What do you do with that? Well, that was a struggle for me. And, and when I said earlier that I tripped over Jesus because I wasn't looking for him, I wasn't. I just got fed up with doing life on my own terms. And I tapped out, brother. I tapped out and I, and I, and I said I'd give God a chance. And so I did. So I did have that framework that you mentioned earlier from the Catholic denomination. I didn't have any understanding. I could not properly handle his word. I could not be prepared, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, to, to tell people why we have the hope that we have. I didn't even have any hope at the time, but I was hungry for something because I knew that my way sucked. So that's when I started doing a, a legal, an evidence dive investigation into those 66 books and to the idea of a God that is insanely in love with me that I didn't know at the time. So you turn to could God. I interject, yeah, go ahead, John, Frank. for just yeah, a yeah. second? You know, Nico, in my your journey, and again, I think this is one of the reasons we connected so well. Is that you know, I, I didn't have my my brother murdered, but I had a, a very abusive dad who I almost killed, and then he broke in that turmoil, turned and became a best friend, mm. and then yanked from me through death. And we have that framework as Catholics. We know there is a God, but we don't have a relationship with him. And so we're living in a world that we were never designed for. We were designed for the Garden of Eden. And so we have to react to that world as best we can to survive, to protect our hearts, to um, the the... One that I pointed to, Nico, in my own journey was those two contemporary theologians, Simon and Garfunkel. Um, <laughs> you remember them? Yes. They wrote a song called, I am a rock, I am an island. And the basic words are safe within my room, tucked within the womb. I touch no one, no one touches me. I am a rock, I am an island and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cried. And that was part of my journey, is that I ceased to be a human being as best as I could to try to protect myself, and became angry because it protected myself. And to find out that we were functioning in a way God never designed us to, 
you know, we were designed for love, designed for relationship. But I was kind of afraid of love. And it's kind of like that old adage, you know, the dog chasing a car. What's he going to do if he ever catches the car? Brother, you're so spot on. Kind of what I was with love. It was like I wanted love, but I was afraid of and didn't know what I'd do with it if I caught it. And so that caused you to be defensive. And my porcupines, mm-hmm. Frank, and I, you've heard me say this to you before in our yes, private sir. talks, was my anger. Yep. I didn't realize it, but it, you know, you can't give what you don't have. If you ask me for 20 bucks, but I only have 10, I can't give you 20 bucks. I can only give you 10. I didn't know at the time it was Matthew 22, 36 and 37. You love the Lord, your God with your heart, mind, soul, strength, everything. Then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, shit. Oh, sorry. Shoot. What if you don't love yourself? Sorry. I thought I was on R rated. What if you don't love yourself? So so if if I didn't have love for myself and forgiveness for myself, if, if I didn't have God's agape definition of love, I didn't understand the other three definitions, Storge and Phileo, and I understood, you know, and Eros and all that. And I understand the distinctions between them, but I didn't understand an unconditional love. I had no, I had no concept. I saw the pain of an unconditional love of my parents when, when my brother was taken from us. And so it was, I was in this royal rumble, literally strapped in a prison. And, and, and I, I got to a point, Frank, I mean, where for me, it was, I, was in, I was in the district court. I was in the 290th. This is not the moment because I, because I know I, I, everyone asks you, Nico, when, when did it happen? When did you become so to me? And I'm not comparing myself to LeBron James or Michael Jordan. Please hear me. I'm just saying, if you ask Michael Jordan, when he got good at basketball, you think he could tell you, you think he'd say, you know, February 8th at 4.09 PM in 2000 and whatever, 19, whatever. No, of course not. It just kind of happened. For me, I don't know. I'll tell you one of the events that made me realize that I needed that I needed to do something else. I was in the 290th District Court. I was representing an individual that in Texas is, was was labeled and was indicted as a habitual. That means he has two prior trips to prison because he's facing a third felony. The minimum he could serve is 25 years to life. So if they gave him the minimum, it would be 25 years. That sucks, right? And so he comes to me and says, Mr. LaHood, if you can get me 15 years, I'd be pleased with that perspective huh 15 years Mm -hmm. to somebody else is like no way and to this guy it was like i'll take it it's satisfactory well as i got to know him and represent him i saw that his daddy was in prison and had been for a long time i saw and heard and learned that his son was on the way to prison and here's this guy where he's at it hit me like a ton of bricks your children will follow your example long before they follow your advice and i said what do i have matthew 22 36 didn't know was that what do i have to give to my kids Oh, I would have been a decent daddy. I think a decent daddy. I would not have been a biblical daddy. I definitely would not have been the, 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 the what they call me poppy, the daddy that I am today. But, but I, I was hungry because I was in love with my children, Frank and John. And I didn't even know their names yet. I wasn't even married. I couldn't get married because I couldn't give myself to somebody to, to what we're talking about earlier. And I realized that there was something deeper that I needed to explore. I, I thought of my grandpa on my mom's side who had passed away in jail. He was, had an issue in the substance abuse, substance dependency issue with alcohol. His son, my uncle Louie, uh, we believe committed suicide. He had an issue with alcohol. His other son, my uncle Eddie, passed away in prison. He had an issue with heroin. Now, they were good people. Don't get me wrong, but they, there was something missing in their life. And we, all the societal ailments that I deal with in the criminal justice system are truly identity crises with, with the living God. They're, they're all symptoms, violence, promiscuity, arrogance, people-pleasing, and people-pleasing is a problem, by the way. I mean, all these things, theft, 
substance abuse, substance dependency, they're all symptoms to something deeper. And, and so I realized it because I deal with this social experiment called the justice system. You know, it is a, it's a, it's an experiment. And I've gotten to see my own self go through it when I was arrested for selling drugs before my brother was murdered. And then dealing with it as a former DA and prosecutor and then as a defense attorney on two different occasions. And I am currently a defense attorney. So a fascinating journey. But, I, but in, in the laboratory of the courtroom, and that's what it is, it's a social laboratory, I got to test the ideology of the Christian worldview. And I came to trust it very much. The evidence supports it. And so I followed the evidence. That's, a, that's an outstanding and captivating story, Nico. You described searching out the evidence uh, to, that led you to, to Jesus. Talk a little bit more about that. Uh, I know you, you, you mentioned it a little bit. Was there a specific turning point? Was there something you read? Was there an aha moment? Uh, when did it finally begin to click to you that what you needed and what all your family had needed for years and your, your friends had needed was just a Jew named Jesus? I, I, wasn't, I wasn't kingdom minded, John. And so, so I remember sitting near my brother's body before I helped load his body on the gurney. All his blood was still there on the driveway because my parents have a, a slanted driveway. And, and I remember thinking to myself, where's Mike? I mean, he's not here. This is his body, and it's already starting to stiffen up. Where's Mike? Do, do, I, do I really believe in this place called heaven? Is he there? Am I going? What do I really believe about my faith or my quote-unquote religion? I mean, that was the seed. It was, I mean, I didn't figure it out at that moment. Obviously, it took years and years. But, but I'll tell you what, I started asking relevant questions, and, 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 and I had no answers. And so that bothered me. And so for me, my journey truly, I guess, was built around the nucleus of the most famous murder scene in the history of mankind. And that was the murder of a first century Jew named Yeshua, right? Jesus. He was murdered. Even atheist scholars will tell you that a first century Jew named Jesus was murdered by Romans and they were damn good at murdering, right? And so I studied the murder scene. I, I, I mean, I studied murder scenes for a living as a prosecutor and defense attorney. So it just seemed normal for me to study that murder scene because if that murder scene led to the most significant event in human history, which is the resurrection, then what else matters? I mean, that, that's the most important thing I could figure out. I had questions, why those 66 books? What about the Gnostic Gospels? What about the Dead Sea Scrolls? What about this and that and Age of the Earth and Genesis and worldwide flood versus regional flood? I mean, I had questions about everything. And, you know, and, and, they, and, I, and I answered all those questions eventually, but, it, but none of it was even worth looking into if I didn't figure out this murder scene. And so I, I studied that murder scene, looked into, you know, there's, there's non-Christians like Phlegon and Josephus and Lucian and Flannery the Younger and Suetonius. These are non-Christians that talk about the life of Jesus and his death and, and apparent mystery behind this event. They didn't call it the resurrection, literally some of them, but I, I started there and I worked my way out. So it was, it was truly, and so for me, it was, it was like, if you're climbing a mountain, this is the only way I can describe it. And after, after 50 feet, you're, you're, you're in, you're a Christian. And I didn't realize I had passed 50 feet a long time ago. And by the time I looked down to find out where the hell I was, I was, you know, 110 feet high. And I looked down, I said, oh, wow, I'm way past being a Christian. I guess I'm all in. 
it was kind of that type of realization as I handled issues and I started figuring things out around the evidence of the resurrection and then and then some of these biblical truths that were just I was mesmerized by the Bible I mean it's so valid and so relevant and so practical people they try to sterilize that book I mean you got to work pretty damn hard to make that book boring and you're gonna have to work even harder to make it PG rated I mean you read the book of Judges please I mean you know and, and you just get through that whole book I mean it's just raw I mean I, I I'm, I'm fascinated by the by the historical Jesus. I became fascinated by the historical Jesus before I gave in to the messianic Jesus. Mm, that's an interesting turn of phrase right there. When did you give in to the messianic Jesus? What happened? It was that realization where, where I realized I was all in as, as the Christian worldview became more credible to me. I mean, I'm into evidence. You have to remember as a DA, I made life and death decisions based off of evidence, literally. I mean, the death penalty in Bear County for four years came through me. And I considered everything and I took it very serious. I through my faith, through all that, and we can talk about that at some other time, Owen, if you want to. But and so um it was more of a realization when I when I when I started studying different issues and when, when the Bible started becoming more and more credible, which means that Jesus became more credible to me. I know that sounds weird to say, but it's true. I'm just going to be real with you. When Jesus became extremely credible to me as I studied his life and, of course, his, his resurrection. And then the Bible itself. And then I came to a point where, man, Jesus is credible, but screw the Old Testament. Who needs the Old Testament? The <laughs> problem is Jesus references the Old Testament. And there's no Velcro on the book. There's no Velcro where you can tear off the Old Testament. So I was like, oh, crud. Okay, I got to, you know, and then I started diving into that. And then age of the earth and all this other stuff because you know, there's a lot of questions behind these things that are not primary questions. Age of the earth is not, doesn't, you know, John 10, nine doesn't talk about age of the earth, but, but it's a credibility issue when you're advocating for Jesus and, and for people, for souls, for me as a little. Oh yeah. Yes, it is. And so I, you know, I just, I looked at all these things and it, it, just, it was this, it was this, 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 oh shoot moment, except it's another word I use and it's it at the end. It, we call it revelation in, in the Christian, you know, when we speak Christianese. And it was just all these oh shoot moments, like oh shoot, that's in the Bible. Oh shoot, that's in the Bible. Oh what what? That was taught. What? Oh my! This Bible, this book is amazing. And then I just you live life long enough, and you realize how credible that book is. And if if you live life just by the way that book teaches you of life, even if you don't accept Christ as your Savior, you're gonna do okay on this side of heaven, you know. But it's just it's it's credibility to me. It, it's I'm not into sound bites. I'm into evidence. And Jesus is into evidence. And, 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 and it hit home to me that I wasn't way off when I, when I studied um, when John the Baptist was in his own storm of life, right? his own crap, crap storm. And here's a guy that heard the voice of God audibly from heaven talking about how pleased he is with Jesus. Here's a guy that knew his whole life was in preparation for the Messiah, that he's eating locusts and his hair looks like crap and he smells probably and he's baptizing people and he baptizes Jesus and it's all about setting the way for Jesus. And then he gets into his own storm, John. And what does he do? He asks his disciples to go to Jesus and ask, is it him? Ask him if he's really the one or if we're supposed to wait for someone else. What a gracious response our Savior gives him. He doesn't say, what did John say? And then starts, you know, going Matthew 23 on him. You brood of viper and you, you know strain a gnat and all this so you hypocrite which wasn't hypocrite in english the english wasn't developed by then so do the math 
But he didn't start using that language in Matthew 23. He says, tell John what you've heard and what you've seen. The deaf hear, the blind see, and the lame walk. Wow. He gave an evidentiary answer. He said, tell them and tell them the evidence you saw. Yes, what you heard. So give him your, your experiential aspect to it also, but give him the objective evidence that you saw. Man, what a gracious and what a practical answer that our king gives to John. And that, that just to me, I mean, I'm in love with that guy. Well, listening to you talk, Nico, um, it reminds me of a guy named Paul, the apostle. <laughs> and I've been spending a lot of time of late plowing into Paul and his conversion. And I'm, I'm just fascinated by the fact that when, when Jesus knocked him off his donkey, uh, it wound up with Paul disappearing, he says, for three years in what I call a personal intimate internship with the Lord. And I get the picture that with Paul, it's sort of the same thing he did with you. He, as a Pharisee, Paul knew everything about everything in the old covenant and God just took him through. Look at this, look at that, look at this, look at that. And that's what all this stuff really means. And it's like three years of aha moments. Wow. I knew what it said, but I never knew what it meant. And that's the word picture that comes into my mind. When I think about your view of a, of a God who, who lays out the evidence, who unpacks it for you and reveals things to you in a way your mind can understand and is meaningful and dramatically impactful for you. So thank you, Father, for your flexibility to meet us with every one of our different personalities, our different slants, our different giftedness. You can speak to us in ways that, that we can understand most clearly. Wow. Thanks, Nico. That's uh, well, a powerful I, story. I, no, well, it, you know, it's just, it just, you know, I always ask when I talk to audiences, I just spoke at a men's conference last Friday and I challenged them. I said, look guys, I'm not a kumbaya Christian. Um, I'm, I'm raw. Um, some people might think I'm inappropriate. I pray for wisdom. I pray the spirit of Ephesians 429 over me, depending on my audience based off what they need. And so when I'm doing prison ministry, it's different than when I'm behind a pulpit. Obviously, God is so practical. He tells us to consider the audience, not what you want to do and, and all your little hangups. It's what the audience needs as long as you're uh, keeping clear and true to, to my word. Um, and I ask, I ask audiences two questions, and maybe this audience should answer these two questions as well. Why are you a Christian? And I just pause and let them think, and you'd be surprised at the answers. And if, because your parents are, is not a good answer because that's what the Mormon and the Islamic person and the Hindu and the Buddhist and the Taoist probably say. Why are you a Christian? And then number two, what does that mean? It's got to mean something. I mean, we're, we're claiming something supernatural, John. We're claiming that, that this Holy Spirit, part of the triune Godhead, comes in and dwells inside of us. What the hell does that mean? What does that look like? When Jesus says, you know, you judge a tree by its fruit. Faith without works is dead. We mean works. What works? Works. I got to do works to be saved. No, but your works will reflect the fact that you've been saved. We have it all backwards, or the religious people do at least. And so I, I just, it's this, it's this deep understanding. And I, I got to answer the why. You know, why are you a Christian and what does that mean? And you'd be, I mean, I'm telling you guys that those two questions 
jack people up and it really challenges them to really dig deep in their relationship. Because if you can't give me the elevator speech, and because being in politics maybe has screwed me up, but you know, of, of what you're trying to advocate for, which is what politics truly only means when you look at the Greek word politica, I mean, just you know, advocate for the affairs of the city. What are you politicking for? We're all called to be politicians in Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Go to all nations, right? Make disciples of all men. How do you do that without politicking for something? And here's the part that nobody likes to hear. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Ah, that means you might offend somebody. Uh-oh. You might be called a name on Twitter. Oops. You might be called an obe behind whatever they want to put an obe behind, even though nobody's called a Christian phobe or a Jesus phobe or anything like that. But it's always the other way around. And then, you know, we, we get castrated as Christians and we take on this punching bag mentality. Well, the punching bag doesn't hit back. And so we take the punches and we get knocked around and we don't defend Jesus. And I think to myself, man, is that what he wants from us? Does he really want us to be punching bags? Or in, in Texas and San Antonio, there's a concept of a piñata. That's a, it's a paper mache type thing. I don't know if you know what it is, where you yes. hit it. Okay. And then the candy comes out of it, usually for festivals and fiestas and, and birthdays. We have this piñata mentality in the Christian worldview. And I think it's, it's, I think it saddens our daddy. I do. I think it saddens our daddy. And, and, and I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to boldly stand for my king because he boldly stood, or I should say he boldly hung for me. He boldly hung and, for us. And I'm, and I'm going to boldly stand for him. Nico, your words are challenging. And uh, I'm looking at the clock and my goodness, time is really flying. Would you come back? I'd be honored next Daddy, time. to have me. Oh, bless you. Yes, we will be happy to have you. Uh, Frank, I assume you agree with that? Absolutely. I would kind of like to unpack the personal ramifications of finding Christ. You know, how did it affect your, your family, your marriage, your job? And how did it supremely affect Nico? And, you know, I'm going to meddle uh, your thought towards the guy that took your brother's life. Mm, great. Uh, All those are fair game, brother. You can ask me whatever okay. you want. Okay. Well, right. listeners, you've heard uh, the teaser for the next episode. So any last comments, Nico, Frank, before we sign off until next time? No, I'm just honored. I'm, I love this conversation. I, I pray that it finds ears to hear, a heart to receive, a mind to, to, to question, not question God, but to question themselves on where they're at with their commitment with God. And ultimately a tongue that proclaims the word. But as I will leave them, I'm going to challenge people. I think it was an evangelist. What a great name, Gypsy Smith. I think it was him. If I'm wrong, I'll correct it. But Gypsy Smith, he said, we are called to be the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, you know, Luke, John, and you, the Christian, because the gospel should be living through us. So as we've heard many times, so for some people, the only Bible they're ever going to read is to watch how you live your life. That sounds great. It's true. But that can only happen if we're living out the gospel. We're living out the word of God. And you can only live something out if you're fully persuaded by it. I'm persuaded by that word. And so I challenge people to be fully persuaded by God's word and to live an authentic life. And I hope that our discussion next time, because that, that what Frank's doing, he, he's getting into the meat and potatoes. Yes. Because the rubber meets the road is, okay, how does this play out in your life? Are you a crappy husband? Are you a good husband? How are you as a lawyer? How does this affect you being a daddy? And what about as an enemy? There's a proper way to be an enemy and not. And I have plenty of experience on that. Trust me. So. I'm happy to share that with you guys and see what it, what the Lord does with it. Well, I'm looking forward to this. Frank, last comments before we uh, adjourn until next time. 
No, like like Nico said, we've we've got to stand up, John. You know, I have a motto. It's trust God and kick butt, depending on the audience. (laughs) (laughs) I might change that to a a more uh, uh, an audience that's more ready to hear my actual heart. (laughs) A more raw and real. There you go. There you go. The world is too dark for us to remain wimpy Christians. Yes, that's the bottom line. That's Amen. for sure. And the time is too short. Uh, the time is too short. And uh, the world is changing before our very eyes. And it's not mm. changing for the better. No, and brother. so, Lord Jesus, we invite you into this nightmare of a world. And we invite mm. you into our lives and uh, make a difference in us so we can make a difference in that. Thanks, friends, for joining us on today's episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. We're really thankful to Nico for showing up today and sharing the first installment of his story. Don't forget to check us out on our website, OurResoluteHope.com. Follow us on all of our social media platforms. And as always, we invite you to choose hope, choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, he offers you himself, his own life. He wants to live his life with you, in you, and through you as you trust him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.